Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera news updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The time is 9 p.m. The date is Sunday, July 23rd. Just about to have a call with Peter Ruyo um, to understand what the circumstances are. You're listening to the voice of Mark Kielberger, co-founder of the WE organization. He's getting ready to talk to his friend and employee of 18 years, Peter Ruhu. Peter is the country director of the biggest international operation, their Kenyan charity. Hey, Mark. Hey, I just got your text. What's going on, Pete? Yeah, um... So, uh, we have a big situation on our hand. Peter has no idea that his boss is taping him, and he's in a panic. Something has gone terribly wrong. Mark, I, I'm not very good at words, but I'm trying to express to you how bad this is. I, I don't, Peter. I'm, I'm not following. I'm yeah. sorry. You have to, you have yeah. to, you have to start again. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Can you? I don't understand. Yeah. It's hard to understand what Peter is saying. The recording isn't great. He keeps talking about how hard it was to get a guy named Steve to take a large amount of money. They already taken, of course, a huge chunk of cash. It took us eight hours to give him the first load of cash. Eight hours. Because he did not trust us. Mm-hmm. It took us eight hours to give him the cash. Mm-hmm. Out of the confusion, two things come across clearly. The first is how much trouble Peter thinks the WE organization is in. It's going to be like, fuck you. You're going for a full audit, and not only full audit, full audit is fucking prejudice. In every arm of this fucking government is going to come down hard on us from tomorrow. This is it. This is Armageddon. The second is that for some reason, Peter is furious with a certain employee of his named Santai. I don't know what the fuck. I don't know what the fuck. I just don't get a fuck why Sunday did that. I don't understand it. I did, don't understand it. Did you t- did you chat with him? No. No, because, you know, I, right now, honestly, I can't shoot the motherfucker dead right now. This recording was leaked to Canada Land in 2020. It raised questions. Why was this call taped? What were they talking about? And why was Mark Kilburger, humanitarian and children's charity co-founder, calmly discussing payoffs, criminal offenses, and murder with this employee? Honestly, I could call my guys tonight and take care of this guy. I'm not even joking. So, Pete, how can I help? From Canada Land Podcasts, this is The White Saviors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, therapy online that has served over 3 million people around the world, and BetterHelp is available here in Canada. A lot of people have various blocks or reasons why they don't just reach out for that help. And one thing you'll hear people say is they just don't have the time. I would like to mount a different uh, argument here, which is that if you are talking to a mental health professional, if you're if you're chatting with somebody about your life and about your priorities, you can clear away a lot of the clutter. You can actually find yourself 
with more time because you have a better sense of what's important to you. Like it's an investment that can pay off even in that practical way of, of organizing your life a bit better. These are some of the advantages in, in the long run of having something like BetterHelp in your life. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. And because you listen to the show, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Once again, it's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. Meet Santai. My name is Santai Kemakeke. I am in Nairobi, Kenya. From 2006, I've been involved with the WE or the Kilberger Brothers until November of 2019. For years, Santai Kemakeke built his life around the WE organization. His story starts in high school when he got involved by pure chance. He got a flat tire one day and needed to hitch a ride into the next town. And the person who stopped to help me was Peter Rohio. And we got talking. And interestingly enough, they were to go to my high school to interview people to take up a scholarship position. That's how Sentai got a scholarship to a college in Ontario. And so it's just coincidence and a few flat tires, and that's how I ended up in Osho. He made a career for himself there, returning to Kenya in 2010 and rising through the ranks until he was second in command. I was senior director of stakeholder relations. It's like a government liaison position. In ranking, I would say, just under the country director. Santai flourished within the WE organization. It's where he met his wife, Jody and started a family. But as you will hear, circumstances outside of Santai's control threatened to separate him from those he loved. And his attempt to keep them close would spark a series of events that would find him in hiding and in fear for his life. And the man he said he feared was none other than his longtime friend and mentor, his boss's boss, Mark Kilberger. There's some trends of Mark Kilberger that show that he can go to all extremes to try and protect his property, image, or reputation. And since I got to work closely with him, I know his secrets. Today, you will hear a story about the WE organization, unlike the ones I've told you so far. The allegations go far beyond what you might expect from a troubled children's charity. These allegations include kidnapping, bribery, and extortion. Before it was all over, WE's top employee in Kenya would be in jail. Another would flee the country these events would break up families and separate children from their fathers. And the Kilburgers themselves would wash their hands off responsibility for any of it, blaming everything that went wrong on the Kenyans they employed. Today, you will hear Santai's side of the story, as well as Peter Rihu's and Mark Kilburgers. But before you do, you need to know a bit about Kenya, where this all took place. Kenya was the jewel in the crown of the WE organization's globe-spanning empire. 
with photos of Maasai Mara warriors, safari adventures, and grateful Kenyan schoolchildren gracing everything from chocolate bar display cases to annual reports. But the reason why the Kielburgers and many others in the development sector base their operations in Kenya is not because it's so poor, but because it's so rich. It is true that Kenya has its share of poverty, but it is also true that Kenya is the sixth richest out of the 54 nations in Africa and its capital, Nairobi, offers all the comforts of a big North American city. For that reason and others, Kenya is a hotbed of activity for non-governmental organizations. There's hundreds of NGOs and, um, of course, you know, with a country like Kenya, that's central to the region. NGOs that operate both here and East Africa have bases here. Kenya is a regional hub and therefore it makes a lot of sense to set up here. This is John Alan Namu. He's a Kenyan-based journalist and founder of the news organization Africa Uncensored. He partnered with Canada Land to report this story. But also in terms of need, there's lots of need for the kind of work that various NGOs uh, have done here including some of the work that uh, Free the Children, we uh, seem to have been doing here as well. The presence of these NGOs means that the country is full of expatriate workers from North America, Europe and elsewhere, around 12,000 of them. You might imagine that people who work for charities fighting poverty would live modestly. You would be wrong. Many of them, in fact, live in exclusive, upscale districts of Nairobi, such as Roslyn. Roslyn is where the Kielburger family owns a posh 5.1-acre estate. So you get places like the Roslyn estate. They are essentially gated communities. These are highly expensive. It's a way of keeping away from the riffraff. Professor Firoz Manji is a Kenyan academic who studies international development at the Institute of African Studies at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada. He is also the former Africa program director for Amnesty International. Well, they're paid very well. They get a hardship allowance. Their children are in private schools and they have an entourage of servants. You see all these international NGOs drive around in SUVs and end up living in these kind of white ghettos. And there are lots of black people there, but they're all part of that elite. We used to have betting games, that, you know, when, when, a, when an expatriate arrived, how long before they started complaining about their servants. If you have money, Kenya is a nice place to live. If you have money, it's a beautiful and safe place to visit with a highly developed tourism industry. It's where the Kielburgers took corporate partners, high roller donors, and A-list celebrities like Demi Lovato. I came here on my 21st birthday because being sober, I wanted to do something meaningful. I was invited by an organization called Me To We, and I love coming here because it's a place that puts everything into perspective for me. The We organization marketed Kenya as a place where celebrities could find meaning in their lives. It's raw and real. I wanted to share this place with my closest friends because I wanted them to hopefully have the same life-changing experiences that I did. Kenya was also sold as a family-friendly destination. 
MeToWe has the safety and best interests of your family at the center of everything they do. The accommodations are magnificent. The food, every bite is a bit of magic. Here's Craig on an episode of MTV's Cribs. Now, I know Cribs typically is in West Palm Beach, Malibu. Welcome to Cribs East Africa style. Some of the uh, rather unique art pieces. You know, God, it's amazing what they managed to build in the absolute middle of nowhere Africa. Out in the absolute middle of nowhere, as Craig put it, the Wii organization could tightly control each visitor's experience. Here is former Wii organization employee, Sarah Coffey, who led the California office. They create this highly curated, seemingly singular experience that is surely life-changing for the people that experience it, but in reality is scripted. The interaction that that celebrity, that donor, that head of state has with a young black child in the Maasai Mara in Kenya is the fifth time that week that that child has had to stop his education and take a photo. It may have been possible to manage every moment for each tourist visiting their rural property, but back at their office in Nairobi, things were getting out of hand. In 2016, the Kenyan government announced that it was tired of foreign workers, quote, getting rich from the charity sector. Expatriates are flooding the multinational, international and even local NGOs for lucrative posts and perks at the expense of qualified Kenyans. The government official in charge of regulating NGOs, Fazul Mohammed, put his foot down. We'll get a case in point where international staff earns four times what a Kenyan earns for doing the same kind of work with comparable skills and qualifications. New rules were put in place, including a ban on hiring an expert for a job that can be done by a local. Just five months after the new rules were implemented, they got a threatening letter from the government about a work permit for a Canadian employee, Jody Collins. Dear sir or madam, your application has been rejected. You are advised to ensure that Jody Elizabeth Collins immediately ceases any engagement with your organization. Kindly note that it's a criminal offense to engage in employment without the valid work permit. You are further advised to explore the Kenyan market for such skill and expertise. The letter was signed by NGO Board Executive Director Fazol Mohammed himself. But the work permit issue was just the beginning. More letters to the Wii organization from different Kenyan government officials followed. We have noted instances of regulatory mischief. Your governance structure is wanting. Your organization is retaining a foreigner even after the rejection of our work permit. Employees are also acting as board members contrary to the terms of your certificate of registration. The board notifies you of its intention to take legal action against you 
you are hereby summoned. Legal action includes prosecution of your directors, deregistration, and deportation. Treat this matter as urgent. Somehow, the government knew about very specific violations of their rules. The crisis spread from issue to issue. Their entire oppression found itself in jeopardy. To journalist John Allen Namu, who obtained the files from the Kenyan government for our investigation, something did not seem quite right. That specific file was very, very closely guarded, right? And, and I wondered why, you know. There's parts of this story that seem to fit within a narrative that had been posited by the NGO board's chairperson, Fazul Mohammed, that they would get tough on NGOs that were irregularly registered or operating within the realm of irregularities. These complaints kept on coming up because, for instance, in one instance, um, they talked about the moving assets to uh, a, a private company, which you know the NGO board would then say was, I think that the term was... Um, mischief. And the NGO board said that they would be investigating and take stern action. But then they'd go quiet after a while. There was no documentation stating why. So these guys would be investigated, then cleared, then reinvestigated, then cleared. Long story short, there's something there in the relationship that I found a little off. John Allen has seen this kind of thing before. Well, this is Kenya. And in as much as I love my country, corruption is a huge problem um, in this country. And um, it, it would not be outside the realm of possibility for someone within the NGO board to be bribed. There have been whispers about um, the NGO board being bent to the will in the past. I, it wouldn't surprise me. It's highly suggestive that there were other conversations that were going on that perhaps couldn't be captured or shouldn't have been captured because of the nature of those, those conversations. Which brings us again to that phone call Mikhail Boga secretly recorded on July 23, 2017. Just about to have a call with Peter Ryu um, to understand what the circumstances are. Our journalists have carefully deciphered each audible word of this recording and put them in context. I will now take you through the call and explain just what you're listening to. Mark, this is, this, I mean, uh, we're just about to finish. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Peter explains to Mark that everything was going okay. They were almost finished. You know, we're just about to finish everything. You know. They finally succeeded in bribing NGO board compliance officers. You know, they already taken, of course, a huge chunk of cash. It was not easy. It took us eight hours to give him the first load of cash. Eight hours. Because he did not trust us. <laughs> These government officials were distrustful and worried that the WE organization may have been working with the police to entrap them. So basically they think they are getting information on them uh-huh. to, their, to, their, to the police. Okay. But after eight hours, they finally took the bribe money. I took eight hours and all over Nairobi uh, to get that money. Uh-huh. But then, just when it seemed that the situation was settled, Something spooked the government's top compliance officer, Steve. So today afternoon, uh-huh. Santa sent a message, some cash, and pesa to Steve's number. It was Peter's own employee, Santai, who interfered. Peter explained to Mark how Santai sent a tiny digital money transfer to Steve in order to accept the money 
Steve would have to provide his full name and phone number. Uh, you, you send a small token amount, like a hundred shillings. Okay. So that he can get his, uh, his telephone number to confirm his telephone number. Realizing that this would create a paper trail, proving he took money from a WE organization employee, Steve refused and concluded that he was being set up. Basically, Steve is like, you're going to call the cops on Mark asks Peter why Santai would mix in, and Peter reminds him that everything started when Jody Collins' work visa became an issue. Santai, they know Santai, obviously, from the first interview they had about the Jody thing. <laughs> Santai Kimakeke is married to Jody Collins. He had a strong personal motive to engage with the NGO board. What he may not have known was that in doing so, he was interfering with his boss's delicate attempt to pay off Steve and others. And now, his boss was furious. I don't know what the fuck. I don't know what the fuck. I just don't give a fuck why Sunday did that. I don't understand it. I did, don't understand it. Did you, t- did you chat with him? No. No, because, you know, right now, honestly, if I had a gun, I would shoot the motherfucker dead right now. Mark then asks Peter what the bottom line is if the NGO board decides to do their worst to the WE organization, what will that look like? But, but can, I, can, I, can I just, I'm simply humbly seeking a um, clarification on that. What, what can they do? Peter counts the ways. They walked us through, in the water through what he does. They can freeze bank accounts. They freeze accounts. Mm-hmm. They can call in the police. The Columbia's officers come with police. Mm-hmm. They can summon immigration and tax officials they get other government agencies involved, carry. The long is bringing immigration. Mm-hmm. Naturally, the media will be alerted. Another nail in the coffin, you know, they obviously alert the, the media. Mm-hmm. The WE organization's violations are all criminal offenses, Peter tells Mark. They're all criminal offenses, basically. Mm-hmm. Every arm of this fucking government is going to come down hard on us from tomorrow. And right now, a bureaucrat has their lives in his hands. If a bureaucrat has their lives in his hands, he can fucking do whatever he But there is still hope. Peter ends the call by laying out a last-ditch plan to smooth things over. He proposes that he will set up a meeting with Steve and the other corrupt NGO board officers, which Mark himself will attend. At that meeting, Mark must disavow Santai completely throw him under the bus. So if I need to throw him under the bus, I swear, with five fucking buses, I'll throw him under the five fucking buses. <laughs> we don't know him. He's gone. In fact, he's gone. Hopefully. Hopefully, hopefully, hopefully. If Mark handles things just right, Peter assures him, we all come out of this clean. We all have come out of this clean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Okay. By the next month, they had come out of it clean. Santai had been flown to Canada and the NGO board had reversed itself completely, declaring the WE organization's Kenyan charity to be fully compliant with their laws. The public had no idea about any of this. Less than two weeks later, Mark Kioberger appeared on national television at WE Day along with his brother and members of the Moppets. 
Gonzo, you're here. Well, of course I'm here at Wee Day. Where else would I be? But Gonzo, you realize you have to earn your way to Wee Day. <laughs> we told Mark Kilberger that we obtained the recording of his call with Peter and asked him to explain it. Here is his response. The recording in your possession was illegally obtained and you are in possession of stolen property which you have no right to possess or use. That was his lawyer's first response. Later, the WE organization provided more information. In fact, they provided an entirely different context for the whole recording. In 2017, WE Charity conducted a spot check of operations and financials in Kenya. It identified irregularities. An investigation was launched immediately. They say Mark was taping the conversation on behalf of the police to gather information about criminal activities that Peter and Santai were involved in, targeting We Charity. As you can tell from the recording, Mr. Kielberger was deliberately encouraging Mr. Rudiu to continue to speak in an effort to collect information for the police. And they say he got results. As a result of the investigation, the employment of Peter Ruhiu and Santai Kimikeki were terminated, and they were charged by the Kenyan police with crimes including theft, fraud, forgery, extortion, and other serious matters. Both individuals signed, witnessed confessions, and all WE Charity funds were returned. This matter is before the Kenyan courts. Okay, so some of that makes sense, and some of it does not. Canada Land editor Jesse Brown investigated this part of the story. My job was to try to verify Mark Kilberger's explanation. Is it possible that Peter and Sante were stealing from the WE organization, as alleged, and that what you're hearing on that call is Mark working with the police on a sting operation to trick Peter into incriminating himself? That would explain why Mark made the recording in the first place. And it explains the kind of leading way that he engages with Peter on the call. I was able to verify aspects of Mark's response. The WE organization did hire a Kenyan security firm, IAS Security. That checked out. Peter and Santai were both arrested and charged by Kenyan police on separate occasions. What that does not explain is why Peter was brazenly talking about bribing government officials with his boss, Mark. I also had some trouble with Mark's timeline. He says that the Kenyan police were involved before that phone call was recorded. And in fact, he made that call at their suggestion and recorded it at their suggestion. Now, if that were true, it would mean that as soon as Mark handed over that recording to the police, they would hear what we heard, which was evidence of Peter confessing to bribery, uh, making multiple death threats, explicitly saying that they were guilty of criminal offenses. But the thing is, Peter was not arrested or even fired when they caught him on tape saying all of those things. Mark kept him in the top job in Kenya, running the whole operation with access to budgets, with power over subordinates for eight more months. Mark even sent Santai back to work, reporting to his boss, Peter, who had repeatedly threatened to kill him. Why would Mark or the police be okay with that? And what I heard from other sources is perhaps a more credible explanation, that Mark's first move was not to alert the police that his first move was to try to deal with Peter's alleged fraud privately. And the reason for doing it that way, I was told, was that by keeping it private, Mark could work with his paid security agents to build a case against Peter, to slowly collect evidence, and then present that evidence to Peter, let him know that they had him dead to rights, and use that evidence to compel him to return the money. And then, 
Our investigation revealed Peter's side of the story. Peter himself refused to speak to me, citing advice from his lawyer. But we found something buried in a court filing for a related civil action. Almost a year after he was secretly recorded by his boss, Mark, Peter Ruhiu walked into a police station in Nairobi and provided a statement. I am Ruhiu Mbugwa Peter, former country director for Free the Children and Me to We Limited for over 18 years. My problems with my boss, Mark Kilberger, started when he forged documents and illegally got a work permit for Judy Collins. So Peter says that he blew the whistle to the NGO board. I whistle blew to the National NGO Coordination Bureau and they launched investigation. And he says that Mark vowed to get revenge on him. And my boss promised to fix me for going to the authorities. Mark and then he claims that Mark Kilberger transferred properties and buildings owned by the NGO to his personal company. Personal company. I thereafter whistle blew to the NGO Coordination Bureau and they launched investigations and placed caveats on the said properties. Peter says that after blowing the whistle, he resigned, at which point Mark asked him for a meeting at a hotel in Nairobi. I was ushered to a small windowless room where he was cornered and threatened. I was accosted by six to seven armed men and ordered to sit down and hand over my phone. I was repeated. So he claims that he was made to sign documents at gunpoint. Paperwork to sign under gunpoint. I was also given a picture of my two children, two boys, and told if I did not cooperate, Mark will make them disappear. And then there was more. After I signed papers, I was again at gunpoint told to enter a black vehicle. He says that he was forced into a car with an Israeli man. They took him to his house, he claims, and made him get out his checkbooks, all at gunpoint. I deposited the checks into Aravelli for Mamas Limited, a company owned by Matt Kilberger. I was then driven back in the company of four armed men to tribal hotel where I was made to sign at gunpoint paperwork in the presence of Mark's lawyer. I was not and finally, more threats. And I was told that if I reported the matter to police, I would be found at Karura Forest and my children would disappear. I was told the police would not record my statement as Mark had paid them to get rid of me. So he went into hiding. As I knew that Mark Kilberger would have me killed. I can identify the Israeli security man as Nohad Geraldin, operations director of IA Security Services. I state again that my life is in danger for exposing the illegality that Mark Kilberger and his team did to me. But I will not be scared by threats to seek justice. That is all to state. Signed, Peter Ruhiu. So what you end up with is a situation where in explaining what is actually going on in that recorded phone call between Peter and Mark, both of them end up explaining that they were, in fact, trying to entrap the other guy. You know, so Mark says that he was working with the Kenyan police, trying to draw out Peter and get him to incriminate himself when he secretly recorded that phone call. And Peter, in his statement to the police, 
he claims that at the time he was collecting and feeding information about Mark's alleged crimes to the government. And as with Mark's account, some of it did in fact turn out to be true. I was able to obtain bank records showing large transfers of cash from Peter Ruhiu to a company called Aravelli for Mamas, which, as Peter states, is privately registered to Mark Kilberger. John Allen's digging into the NGO board files confirmed something else that Peter claimed in his police statement, that land and property belonging to the WE organization's Kenyan NGO were in fact transferred to a private company. And the NGO board did flag this as a violation, and they did place a temporary caveat, which is a freeze that prevents it from being transferred. Peter, in his police statement, identifies an Israeli security man named Nohad Keraldine. That is the name of the person who runs IAS Security, who were, yes, hired by the WE organization. IAS, incidentally, also employed an armed guard named Moshin Ranatunga, who we learned happened to be a fugitive at the time, facing criminal charges in both Sri Lanka and Kenya. Moshin Ranatunga. Remember that name. Now, the parts that we could not verify were all of those claims about forgery and kidnapping and death threats and cash transfers at gunpoint. And to be very clear, Mark Kielberger and other WE organization employees deny that any of that happened. We also obtained text messages that were sent by Mark Kielberger to an employee in which he's found plotting against Peter. He writes, spend what you need to in order to get this done. We need him arrested. And he was. Peter Ruhu was taken into custody on charges of making a false statement, and Mark's name is on the charge sheet as a witness. And once that happens, Mark then texts his employee again, demanding pictures of Peter in jail. Face in front of the bars, ideally. Those are the words that he wrote. The employee who Mark sent those texts to was Santai Kimakeke. Santai says that watching Mark build a case against Peter changed the way he felt about working for the WE organization. We had seen how Mark had gone from like an idol, somebody that we really respected, to be somebody who cared a lot about money and vengeful. And honestly, the way he treated Peter and how he was corrupt and bribing police officers. I can 100% say that he has bribed his way through the judicial and police system in Kenya. He just didn't sit well with us. Santai clashed with Peter's replacement, and in September 2019, he says Mark Kilberger took him for a drive and gave him an ultimatum. He needed to get in line or leave. Santai chose to leave. At first, it was on good terms. Santai was offered a severance package and the good wishes of the WE organization. But then, something happened. Santai says that Mark's assistant, Karine, asked him to join a meeting at a Nairobi hotel on November 12, 2019. So I had a weird feeling about that meeting. <clears throat> so I go sit down with Karine. My back is facing the door. And somebody touches my shoulders, turn around, it was Mark himself. He sits down and he's like, we're going to have a very important conversation and it's going to be a tech-free conversation. Could you please turn your phone off? 
And I go to get my phone to turn it off. And he twists my wrist and then grabs the phone and gives it to Corinne. Santai says he got up and threatened to leave. I told him that I didn't want to be in such a meeting and I, I just wanted to go. And he told me that you don't want to do that because there's two, there was two police officers outside. Santai says Mark then accused him of trying to blackmail the WE organization. Someone had apparently sent letters threatening to go public with information about what happened with Peter and with the NGO board and demanding money for silence. Mark was certain that Santai was part of the plot. Like he was very threatening. He said, you know I am here. We both know I am here. Why don't we just cut the bullshit? Santai says the next 24 hours were the worst of his life. So they would take turns interrogating me that night. So Mike and Karin would talk to me for maybe half an hour, 20 minutes. And they would go out, make phone calls, talk to somebody as the police officers were talking to me. They're like, just tell them, you know, they just want to find out if you are the one who did it. I had no idea what they were talking about at that point. Santai says Mark pressured him to sign a document. I have a document here that you're going to sign. I'm not going to use it now. But I'll hold it over your head for the rest of your life if you ever cross me again. He didn't sign. Finally, Santai says he was taken to the police station where he spent the rest of the night. His phones and computers were confiscated. I had nobody to talk to. I didn't have a cell phone. It was really ridiculous. It's not normal. But they found no evidence of a blackmail plot and he was released. All of this was happening just months after the First Lady of Kenya had personally thanked the WE organization and Craig Kielberger for their contributions to her country. We're here to celebrate a dream come true, a unique initiative that started in Ontario, Canada over 25 years ago that's now become a global movement in reaching 45 countries around the world. The ethos of me to we is based on giving back. He was charged with forgery and falsifying work documents. Santai then sued we for malicious prosecution. And then... The specific date when the police came to the house was February 21st. The dog starts barking, I hear knocks, somebody calls my cell phone, saying that, hey, we are police officers. We need to search your house. Mont earlier says Santai, Moshin Ranatunga, the Sri Lankan fugitive working for IAS security, had asked Santai for a favor. He was going on a trip and said he wanted to travel light. Could he leave two duffel bags at Santai's house? Santai says he didn't think anything of it. He put the bags in the guest room and forgot about them. They ransacked the whole house. And then they asked me if I had keys for the servant quarters, which he did. So I opened it up and in there they found Moshin, uh, his two duffel bags that he had left. And in there was a bulletproof vest, a gun cleaning kit and a holster. There were no guns or weapons in the duffel bags, but a bulletproof vest, gun cleaning kit and holster were close enough. They took me in for investigation for terrorism. He spent two weeks in jail. He was released with no charges. But the investigation, he says, was enough to get a stop order put on his passport. 
Later, when I asked Santai about this, he told me that he believed that the We Organization were responsible for setting him up. It was the We Organization's security guy who came over and left those bags with a bulletproof vest uh, and so on at the house where Santai was living. And later, when the cops showed up at his doorstep, they knew the bags were there. In fact, that's exactly what they were looking for, claimed Santai. Mark Kilberger and the WE organization deny that they were behind this. And the reason he believed that he had been set up for this anti-terrorism investigation was to give Mark Kilberger leverage over him. He was now stranded from his family, who had fled to Canada. And that's when he says the WE organization asked him again to sign the documents. If he did, they would end all court proceedings against him and he could reunite with his family. So before that, they didn't really have any bargaining power because since they had not done anything, they could not prove that he did anything. Now they have something to dangle, like we can withdraw a case if you agree to these terms. Santai and his lawyers went back and forth with we, trading drafts of a letter in which he admits to doing things he says he did not do. Even the last agreement we ended up signing still had elements of self-incriminating, but not explicit. He only signed it, he says, so he could see his family again. But it would not be that easy. But they went back on the agreement. He says he gave Mark Kilberger everything he could, but he knew it wouldn't be enough. He never signed a gag order, and that made him a liability. The only other option that was left was to harm me. In Kenya, it is common for witnesses to be eliminated in unrelated circumstances. Something inside of me was telling me that something bad was going to happen to me imminently. And so I knew that I'm a marked man and I would be looked for. Like I truly believed that I'd get hurt. Santai Kimakeke was in a permanent limbo. Then, Something truly unexpected happened. Half a world away, a political scandal broke in Canada, and the WE organization was at the center of it. We've also just learned this hour that the Ethics Commissioner will be investigating the decision to award the WE charity the sole source contract to manage the $900 million program. People were suddenly open to hearing criticism of the previously celebrated charity. Santai had one card left to play and one chance to play it. He turned whistleblower. He published a blog called Odd Truths About We. Everything you heard today would still be a secret if not for that website. We read Santai's blog and we interviewed him, but that, of course, was not enough. We then spent weeks seeing if we could substantiate the things that he told us with John Allen's expert assistance. And we found quite a bit of documentary evidence. And then we sent a long list of tough questions to Mark Kilberger. And that is when journalist John Alan Namu was approached by a man who wanted to talk. They agreed to meet. And when they did, this mysterious stranger handed John Allen the list of questions Jesse had sent to Mark Kilberger. Unpublished questions. He suggested that John Alan Namu should kill the story. What's always in it for a journalist that, that kills a story? Money. It was implied that, you know, this, this could benefit me. 
um, in some way if the story didn't, you know, didn't make it. So this person said, look, you know, Mark, Mark seems to be desperate. And in desperation, there's opportunity. After Canada Land published its story, Santai's website disappeared and in a very abrupt phone call, Santai recounted everything he had said. Uh, the information I shared with you was inaccurate and I'll be in touch. But why did he recant? I don't want to draw any conclusions about what happened that I can't verify, but I will lay out four facts, things that occurred one after the other. First event, Santai posts serious accusations against Mark Kilberger, and he promises that there is more where that came from. Then Santai recants and says that everything he said before was untrue. After that, all of the criminal charges against him are dropped. And finally, the fourth thing that happens, and, and this is something that we are reporting now for the first time, Santai was finally allowed to leave Kenya and reunite with his family in Canada. The WE organization in Kenya transferred millions of dollars in Kenyan land and buildings into the beneficial ownership of its Canada entity, WE Charity Canada. These assets are now effectively out of the regulatory reach of the NGO Board of Kenya. Peter Rihu's wife, Michelle, divorced him, taking their children to live with her in Canada, where she continued to work for the WE organization. After almost 20 years of doing both charity and business in Kenya, the Kilburger family had accumulated more assets for themselves than for Kenyans. They listed the value of their private Kenyan real estate at over $5 million, while annual filings put the total assets of the Kenyan NGO at under $4 million. For me, the most striking thing about these events is just how drastically it all contrasts with the official narrative of how African lives are impacted by the WE organization. You see, if indeed what has come out about the Kielberger's direct and most apparent ways in which uh, there was some manipulation or an attempt to manipulate the system, then it tells you exactly what the WE charity organization think about what they can get away with in Kenya. And they wouldn't be wrong. As you have heard, this story only came to light by accident as a random consequence of a political scandal in Canada. But it was not the only story that the scandal unearthed. In the summer of 2020, the dam burst on 25 years of suppressed secrets. I have filed a fraud investigation with the United States Internal Revenue Service calling for We Charities and Free the Children to be investigated for fraud in the United States. That's next time on the final episode of The White Saviors. The White Saviors is written by Mark Slotsky. Narration and script assistance by me, Olushala Adiogun. Production by Jesse Brown and Kevin Sexton. Mixing and sound design by Chandra Bulukon. Special thanks to Tristan Capicchioni. This series is based on reporting by Jaren Kerr, John Alan Namu, Jesse Brown, Jonathan Goldsby, and many others. 
more details on this story, including a list of our source material, full articles and complete responses from the WE organization, visit canadaland.com slash whitesaviors. If you like the White Saviors, please subscribe and review. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.